This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. If you've been a listener of this podcast from the beginning, you'll remember the discussion about African indigenous religions with Professor David Amponza at the University of Missouri. In my introduction to that episode, I discussed how indigenous religions of Africa, of North America, and more comprise a significant gap in my knowledge, and that a major goal of this podcast for myself was to attempt to close my own knowledge gaps a little bit at a time. So today I'm diving back into the world of indigenous religions, this time of indigenous North Americans. In my own classes, I regrettably have never had an American indigenous presence. Every year my intention is to bring more of a North American indigenous voice into the classroom, because of the significance of the land all North Americans walk upon and drive upon each day. The interpretation of what this land means varies so much across this continent, depending on who you ask. I've done some scholarly work around the world of education policy and schooling with regards to how indigenous North Americans are represented in the United States history K-12 learning standards, and collaborated with professors Sarah Shear, Antonio Castro, and Ryan Knowles, on a research article entitled Manifesting Destiny, Representations of Indigenous Peoples in K-12 U.S. History Standards, published by Theory and Research in Social Education in 2015. But since I've become a religious studies teacher, my knowledge of indigenous North American religions has remained painfully oblivious, so I started seeking guests to help me fill in this gap. And I found one. I found Professor Dennis Kelly from the University of Missouri, who has accepted my invitation to be on the podcast, and also to visit my students in my high school classroom. Dennis Kelly is an associate professor of religious studies at the University of Missouri, Columbia. He received his master's and doctorate from the University of California, Santa Barbara, with emphases in American Indian religious traditions, religion in American culture, and myth and ritual theory. His most recent major publication was his book, Tradition, Performance, and Religion in Native America, subtitle Ancestral Ways, Modern Selves. And he's currently working on a book tentatively titled Having Had a Spiritual Reawakening, subtitle Religion and Alcohol Addiction Recovery in Indian Country. He teaches several core courses at Mizzou, including Introduction to Religion, Religious Myth and Ritual, and Indigenous Religions, as well as American Indian Religious Traditions and Religion and Humor. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Dennis Kelly.
Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden, and I'm here today with Professor Dennis Kelly. So, you write in the Introduction to Tradition, Performance, and Religion in Native America, published in 2015, and you state that there are, quote, assumptions about religion in indigenous cultures as being fairly simplistic and therefore prone to pre-contact stasis and to erosion from newer non-indigenous ideas will be refuted. And then you go on to say that, quote, indigenous religious traditions adhere to some of the same operational principles as other religious systems in the modern world. So this quote really grabbed me. And to me, this means that listeners who know a lot about Native American indigenous religious traditions or traditions in general, if they know nothing, they can still see indigenous traditions in new and deep ways. And for those who are experts, they can still see it in new and deep ways because they can make connections to the society around us. So to me, this quote is sort of an open invitation to the curious to ask questions. So you want to begin? Sure. Awesome. So why don't you go ahead and start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and why you became a religious studies professor? Um, I I often think about that myself, actually, because that, that the draw to it, I think, the study of religion, probably from my upbringing in a really diverse neighborhood, I grew up in a low-income housing project, and so a lot of the people that I hung around with were, their families were, were Buddhist, AME. Um, I had some friends from uh, from India who were Hindu. Um, I had a couple of other Native uh, friends as well in in the, this sort of housing project, and so I think that there's a part of me that feels like I always had some sense of religious diversity and being interested in what other people do, hanging around in their houses and with their families and whatnot. Um, and so when I finally got a chance to go back, go to college, I didn't start college until I was 30, I had traveled around the western U.S. looking for jobs and, and, and work and that kind of thing and encountering people from all across um, sort of economic, social, educational, ethnic, and religious boundaries. That just I, I had a, a, that kind of a, of a life, I think. And so by the time I got a chance to study people for a living... Uh, I think that the the idea that religion was one um, of the of the best sort of windows to look into the building of culture with. I don't know if that makes any sense. Sure. But if you have, if you're, because I always tell my students, if you have a building that's like a human culture, and there are w- windows that people look into it through the economics window, the philosophy window, the anthropology window. I always picture religious studies as a as a like a big picture window that takes in the gaze of a lot of the others um, because it's economic, it's political, it's ethnic, it's social. And so I think that I was naturally drawn to it as a, as a way to get at a lot of social issues on the ground, I think. So growing up in that diverse environment, did you have the sort of relationships and friendships where you could like openly ask questions about what it meant to be Buddhist or what it meant to be AME or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. In fact that the, um, my, my first real girlfriend was uh, it was AME and her family so African American obviously and they um, uh, went to church a lot all the time and it went with them but there was uh, one sort of um, sort of controversial member of her mom's family a brother of hers so uh, my girlfriend's uncle who had converted to Islam so he belonged to the the, um, the nation of Islam um, and so that was this controversial sort of issue and so for me it was really asking why that was such an issue, what, what the problem was about it. Um, and so those kinds of issues oriented, I think, questions sort of arose. I, I, my friend that was Buddhist, Tram, was his family 
had been airlifted from uh, uh, from Vietnam at the fall of Saigon, at the end of the war, end of the Vietnam War, and so he was a little kid, a little a little baby, essentially evacuated off the roof of uh, uh, of a building in in Saigon, and so knowing that that was an issue, that that um, sort of his Buddhist family that had had felt persecution under the the Catholic government of Vietnam at one time, that those kinds of things just sort of uh, opened themselves up, I think, for questions. And as much as people knew, I I guess I was a kind of a curious, nerdy kid as it was. So I would go look things up. Um, We had this big, um, because that was way before Google, obviously. So there was um, this, uh, we had this big sort of um, encyclopedia uh, collection my mom would always just say, go look it up. I don't know, go look it up. And so I would you know, go find these things out. So I know that you're uh, mostly a specialist in your scholarly areas of indigenous American religions. What drew you to um, indigenous American religious traditions? Again, I think it was my sort of my experience in my home family compared to the people around me. So both of my grandmothers being native, but, but also devoutly Catholic, that there was a kind of a uh, of an interest with how people were indigenizing Catholicism, I guess, hmm. or how my aunt, my uh, aunts and uncles and my parents' generation were still sort of seeing themselves as being, you know, enmeshed in these uh, sort of land, um, more localized traditions, in addition to feeling fully Catholic, fully uh, members of that sort of tradition. And so I think that that, that was part of my um, sort of understanding of it, was this sense of um, sort of that that identification with a uh, with one and the other that got me to really wonder about what indigeneity meant in the modern world, and that sort of has driven my my scholarship ever since. Really, I think. Fantastic. So let's dive into the American indigenous religious traditions. So can you briefly describe some of the diversity uh, of American indigenous religious traditions? It's kind of difficult to, to put them all um, out there. There are so many. There are um, literally hundreds of uh, federally recognized tribes and then hundreds more that go unrecognized and then hundreds in, in addition that uh, were event- essentially uh, sort of killed off, rubbed out um, w- with contact. And so uh, the, the best thing I think would be to think regionally that if you were to think of um, like the Southwest um, that you can sort of imagine an arid region, high desert, um, that the culture is associated with that, those places, Apache, Navajo, uh, Zuni, the Pueblos in general, um, that those tribes sort of have a lot in common because of the, the nature of the landscape. But if you were to move then to the, like the, the northeast, northeastern seaboard, a completely different environment and producing completely different sort of tribal lifeways associated with that kind of environment. And so if you sort of break the, the country up, um, in fact, a, a, a friend and colleague of mine, one of the first things I ever did professionally uh, in terms of publishing was a three-volume encyclopedia on American Indian religious traditions. And one of the first problems we encountered was how to divide the country up, um, how to divide all these tribes into at least some workable grouping. And so we use these sort of geographic zones, ecological zones, because the relationship between the indigenous people and the natural cycles of their place is what kind of drives their philosophical systems and traditions. Um, and so that you can sort of think about 
uh, high desert southwestern people are sort of like desert people that a lot of their their traditions revolve around um, water and rain and uh, and seasonal cycles of of uh, you know monsoon and and then uh, drought and so sort of figuring out how to think about the world with regard to the making it produce in those sort of short periods versus someplace like the Pacific Northwest where they've got uh, a, a, a sort of particular relationship with the salmon, for example, and that the, the cycle of the salmon's life and the way that the rivers run wild and crazy after the spring runoff and then sort of ebbing down um, only to sort of become wild and crazy at, in the spring again, the sort of cycles of life that um, that sort of drive their philosophical systems. I don't know if that makes sense, but but in relationship with particular places, these sort of systems come about, I think. So now that we've got the listener thinking geographically, mm-hmm. thinking regionally, let's dive into some of like the basics um, of indigenous religious traditions. Mm-hmm. So what are some introductory basics that people with zero knowledge should know about American indigenous religious traditions? Like what are some of the roles of important people? Mm-hmm. Um, is it theistic? Things like that. I think that the best way to think about it, again, because of the wide variety and the differences um, and the uh, uh, the fact that they're so diverse, would be to think in terms of um, the, the the things that they have in common. And to me, I, I always talk about it with regard to three, I call them the three Ps, uh, place, power, and protocol. Um, place, that just what I was talking about, that relationship with specific places and the, the deep sort of intimate regard for the the cycles of nature and the the animistic nature of it that that this the and the um, landscape itself is sort of conscious there are multiple consciousnesses out there that people human beings are the only only one of the groups that have consciousness in the world other and the animals and plants and uh, natural phenomenon and so a relationship to a particular place um, power, the idea that there's a sacred power that runs through those places is, is pretty much ubiquitous throughout um, American Indian traditions generally, that there's some sense of a, of a unifying sacred that, that either is, is envisioned as a wind or as some other sort of flowing energy that's not at all unlike um, chi in Taoism, sort mm-hmm. of this, nat- this, this naturally sort of flowing energy that, that everyone is able to plug into. Um, and then the third thing, the protocol, that because of the relationship between the places and the, the other than human world and the sacred powers that unite us, there's there's this sense of a proper way to behave, the proper um, time and place to do things, proper roles that people have, proper relationships that they adhere to, um, ceremonially speaking, that they, we have a certain responsibility to certain kinds of things. And so all, I think, and I don't usually say all or or never, or any of those sort of totalizing things, but very nearly all American Indian religious traditions have some sense of a of, of a proper way to 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 live in the world. The Lakota call it the Red Road, the Road of Righteousness, the um, the 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 proper way to do things given our responsibility and given the fact that we aren't the only consciousnesses around that we have responsibilities. 
So I want to dive into a specific example of that, of mm. place and then that sacred power of a place. So if we picture something that's been in the news the last couple of years, whether it be Keystone XL, mm. whether it be Dakota Access uh, pipelines that run across sacred lands, can you kind of take us into the thinking of what that would look like with regards to the sacred place and the possibility of damaging it irreparably. Yeah, yeah sure, absolutely. The, I think that the pipeline is a great example, but that Dakota Access, um, that the awareness of it, I mean, politically speaking, it, I think it's pretty obvious when it, it's, it's being built near non-native communities and they complain because of the concerns over, over the obvious environmental um, harm that can be done, it gets moved away and gets moved toward Indians. And that's a, a fairly common um, uh, event in Indian country that, that placing things um, near Indians because that they, they aren't seen as being an, a, as worthy of that kind of concern. But for the natives themselves to see themselves as not just protecting their individual sort of tribal territories, but rather they're protecting the water um, that they, they, they even refer to themselves as water protectors, that there's a re- responsibility to this resource that that a responsibility that it's there for people seven generations into the future that a sense that because of this being their place and the sacred nature of life and the form of water and that water itself has um this sort of sacred role to play that clearly then it's going to be their responsibility in terms of protocol to be the protectors of that of that resource and so they're doing the same thing that their ancestors would have done ceremonially from time immemorial. I've got a chapter in the book about the idea of protest as ceremony, that you, you, you participate in the cycles of the world somehow, that there's always in, in every tribal uh, community that I've, I've ever been in touch with, there's some ceremonial relationship between the people and the powers of that place. And you, you have a responsibility to keep up that your end of the bargain. It's almost a chore that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, in the, the, I would say, it's the late 19th to, or through to now the 21st century that American Indians have involved themselves in putting themselves in, in harm's way oftentimes. And we saw that with the, with the pipeline uh, protests, that that's a, almost a, a, a ritual act, almost a religious act. To, to place themselves in some position to protect that resource because they've always seen themselves in that role, protecting these these resources, and not just for themselves, but for, like I said, seven generations into the future, that this is a, um, a sacred obligation, I guess, to protest. So a question springing to mind here. So maintaining an indigenous identity in the 21st century, it cannot be easy. Hmm. So what are some of the challenges to maintaining these indigenous traditions as we move forward in 2017, 2018, into the future? You know, it's interesting because I, I think it's probably easier than we give it credit for that in a lot of ways that the dynamic nature of culture in general, human beings, that we that we change and adapt and, and change over time, that we wouldn't, that we aren't shocked that we don't go around and with buckles on our shoes and, and using old English like the colonial times. And so that the reason I don't know why we would expect the native people to be the same as they were 200 years ago, 250 years ago. And so their, their um, religious traditions. And one of the reasons why I think studying religion through the lens of native America is, is such an interesting thing 
is that they're re- they're the trappings of religion, the kinds of things that we think of as being religion, the beliefs, um, are often uh, we allow them to be overshadowed by the, or rather be overshadowed the actual sort of relationships that people have as a result of them. So in other words, that that religion, if if nothing else, is about forming and maintaining community identities over time. And so the, the religious practices can sort of change to a certain degree, but those deeply held values are what's sort of seen as the constant. And so if you have a contemporary tribal group that um, that no longer can practice their, their uh, ceremony in exactly the same way as their ancestors did, they they still maintain those practices just maybe in mo- some somewhat modified forms if mm-hmm. that makes sense sure um and that that sort of the change over time then is that whether you urbanized uh, tribes whether the, the cities have grown up around your tribal um traditions like places like i'm f- familiar with out in los angeles um and places like santa barbara california where the the city sort of has grown up in in your sacred area or other places where you you've been removed to them like the Cherokees being moved to Oklahoma, um, or whether you've just dispersed as individuals leave to find jobs from the reservation to find themselves in, in like Minneapolis, St. Paul or St. Louis, uh, Missouri, that you that that you look for people that share those common values. I mm-hmm. think, um, and it's interesting to to think about American Indians as as indigenous. Um, sort of indigenous actors in the modern world that that it's that what's rising i think uh, around the world i see anyway is a consciousness um, um indigenous people needing to um develop an ideology i think of not only protecting the environmental resources which is part of it but also the responsibilities that go into those into that behavior really goes to being a, a good person and that people wanting to raise their kids in ways that that have them you know connected to these larger ancestral traditions and the sense of responsibility and pride that comes from being an ancient people that has uh, adapted over time um and that and that's why I, I in that quote you started with that it's not that different than a lot of contemporary religious traditions if you see people that that um their contemporary like we like muslim uh uh people here on campus or um, uh, people that practice Zen Buddhism. There's ancient traditions there, but they just do it in a way that that they're able to inter- interact with the modern world in ways that aren't that aren't uh, diminishing their their sense of sacred values. That's fantastic. So in your view, what is the goal of, or purpose of American Indian um, or indigenous religious traditions? So like what's being sought after? I think that it, it it goes to like I said the very nature of religion in general that this idea of establishing and maintaining a, a collective identity um, and some sense of of continued um, shared purpose I think that people look for um, deeper connections between themselves and other people that they can sustain over time I think it's 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 inherent in our species really in my in my opinion that we sort of developed as a social animal. Um, and so in a lot of ways that, that con- especially contemporary American Indian traditions are, are an attempt to, to get back at what they see as being that those kinds of um, anchors uh, in, in community, in family, 
in places and then the relationships and responsibilities that go along with those things. Um, and so ultimately, I think the goal is to maintain um, some sense of a communal identity and a value system that they see as, as inherently their responsibility given their connection to particular places. So I noticed that you haven't said anything about God or theism at all. Is there any kind of theistic nation, um, notion to indigenous religions? Well, many tribes do. There, there, there's a wide variety that, that some um, traditions like my, my great-grandma's uh, people, there's a deity um, that sort of Kakunamawa, he was, he is, he's known as, but sort of the, the mystery behind the sun, the sun is his torch. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there's a whole pantheon of other beings that sort of um, exist in the, in the sort of celestial realm that are often pr- propitiated for different reasons and at different times. Then there are other traditions where there are multiple deities um, and that the, the people um, sort of focus on one goddess figure like like uh, Isana Klesh for the Apaches. There's a kind of a, a, um, a sort of a, a goddess figure of, of, of creation, sort of an earth goddess. Um, in other traditions, it's kind of a, like a committee that, there's a, for, that the, their creation stories start with a group of, of beings that essentially create um, together collectively. And so it, it really varies from tribe to tribe, region to region. Um, but I think that, that the idea of a spiritual being, a sacred being, uh, uh, or, or multiple beings is probably pretty ubiquitous, that there are various gods and spirits around. But, but most of them are available um, in, in a more intimate sort of way, that there's a, a way to interact with the spirits, that um, there's a, the uh, Ojibwe have a, a concept Manitou that the spirits that are associated with the various things in the world and that you you sort of propitiate them as part of your day-to-day life that's what you do that that it's 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 the only only the proper thing to do given the fact that they do these things for you um water and uh and uh sort of the fur-bearing animals that that would be trapped or food resources that you owe something back for all these gifts that you're given and that and that it's kind of a an exchange kind of let's get comparative for a second mm-hmm. so if you think about all the religions in the world the roughly 4200 or so i think that are named and listed mm-hmm. what do you like the most about indigenous religions whenever you think about it as a world religion uh, i think the 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 locative nature of it that there's a guy called um Jonathan Z. Smith that talks about the two basic divisions in world views around the around the globe. One utopian, so thinking in terms of like the Abrahamic God creating the entire universe, or Buddhism that the Buddha uh, nature is is the the entire universe. Versus locative ones where the the traditions are associated with specific places and communities. And so what I, what I enjoy about learning about indigenous uh, religions generally is how they bring um, people back to some sort of responsibility one to another of more, much more smaller sort of sustainable cultures. And that, to me, in a lot of ways, what we may be lacking in, in, in this modern world is that sense of the local and, and being um, responsible. That might be partially because I'm from, I'm from this, this neighborhood, this sort of low-income housing project where everybody knew everybody's business um, where it, it could feel stifling at times when I was a kid, I can see the, the, the benefit of, of, 
knowing that there was a safety in this in in the fact that at any point someone could pop open the door of their apartment and 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 yell at yell at us for doing something wrong and our parents would thank them for it right mm-hmm. that we were much more sort of i don't know it was like a village really in a lot of ways and so i think that that's what i i, I admire most is that that sense of because I was telling my students just just the other day, we were talking about this idea of it takes a village to raise a child, you mm-hmm. know, and some kids bristle at that. They have some sense of, but it should be my 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 right, my responsibility. And what I said was, I I'm not sure if anybody is not raised by a village. It just depends on what their village is. Um, it could be the internet. It could be whatever pop culture or something. Mm-hmm. That's that that our our kids are being raised in some sort of a of a. Uh, network where there's influence beyond our own families and the strength of the family influence is, is what's going to keep kids from being I think um, uh, unduly influenced by by some of the more negative kinds of things out there I think you know like I grew up in St. Louis Missouri mm-hmm. and um, I was when I was 20 eight 27 i moved to saskatoon saskatchewan mm. and i did a master's degree at the university of saskatchewan and there's a huge place-based environmentally aware uh education department mm. at that university in their college of education and it wasn't until i moved there and i started studying with uh there's an indigenous um professor up there named uh, marie batiste who's a mm. uh, mi'kmaq from the east coast mm. of canada and i had another friend um who is uh Cree um, up there and they started talking about what it meant to live in a place and what it meant to like be uh, attached to a physical piece of earth and you know like it started to inspire me a little bit Mm. and I noticed that I was looking at the world different I was walking physically different if I was walking through a park I would be a little different in the way that I would move around Mm -hmm. and the power of thinking locally the power of thinking place-based is really inspiring and Mm. I think that's some a concept that can be attached to anybody in our society Mm. whether they're indigenous or not yeah yeah absolutely and I think that that's that that's part of the, the goal of sort of contemporary indigeneity is really to sort of reintroduce people to this um, to this uh, amazing feature of of our planet, and that's the natural world, the natural cycles of it, mm-hmm. um, and recognizing our responsibility to maintain those relationships. I think. Yeah, just think about how you're moving around mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah. What kind of uh, energy do you want to leave behind you? Right. Right. You know? Yeah. So uh, let's get nerdy. Mm-hmm. Um, so who are some of your favorite scholars, writers, thinkers, um, anybody related to indigenous religious traditions of any kind um, that you would like to recommend to anybody who wants to know more? Well, I think that, that there's a couple of sort of classic books that, that, um, that can really, um, uh, I, th- I think, turn people's heads. And one of them is a book that's by a guy called Vindaloria Jr. called God is Red. Um, and that when that... Um, that book came out. It's an, it's an older book now, and he's passed away. Um, that that um, I think for a lot of people caused them to stand up straight. That that or sit up straight. That um, uh, Vine Deloria Jr. Is, was trained not only in a, uh, sort of anthropological theory, but also um, uh, theology and the law. And so he had he had the ability. He was sort of a Renaissance. Um, man kind of sort of able to, to think in all these different directions and, and that, so I think that that if people wanted to read that book um, there's there's a lot of I, I, unfortunately there are there are so many that I want to leave anybody off because <laughs> my friend um, Suzanne Crawford O'Brien has a couple of books out um, that are sort of overarching 
treatments of, of Native America in general that I think are good. There's a book called um, uh, Looking uh, East from Indian Country that's good, that, that sort of thinks about um, how American Indians see the, the world in this sort of post-Columbian world. There's also one called 1491 that does this sort of the same thing, what things were like at one point. Um, gosh, I, there are just so many. Yeah. But but because I, I happen to be more of a religious studies nerd, too, and so I, I think that there are a lot of things about um, religion. And I had mentioned uh, Jay-Z Smith's book, and so I think that there's that if you were to look at, um, he's got a, um, uh, a book called... Um, um, Gosh, the, the name is flown right out of my head. I should have had some notes. But um, anything by him, actually, they're all fairly small books. Um, uh, from Babylon to Jonestown was the one I was thinking of. Excellent. That sort of talks about the the idea of religion. And that to me, that if you put those things together and think about how American Indians are being religious in the same way that other people are being religious, um, and, that, and that how American Indians have sort of indigenized western uh, traditions especially christianity that you start to see how people then utilize these concepts um semiotically to sort of make meaning with them that um that uh, just like a lakota might see jesus as a sun dancer like an ultimate sort of sacrifice on uh dancing for the for the people kind of sacrifice that that same kind of thing can happen both ways that that christians i think can learn a bit um, about how Christianity works by how in, indigenous people, especially Native Americans, have made something of it. Um, we were just talking yesterday about, um, or I keep saying yesterday, Friday, about um, the Native American church, sort of a Christian-oriented church, and yet completely Native uh, insofar as that um, uh, peyote is used as a sacrament in that, in that tradition. And so decidedly non-Christian, and yet and yet for them, it's very much about the same sort of Christian gospel that everybody else sort of reads and adheres to. And so for me, I think that that's part of what's interesting to me is that if people can sort of think about religion differently, that it's not just a set of beliefs, but but rather what collectively people do together, I think, um, also. That it's not just what an individual person has or believes, but what we collectively do um, together given those beliefs i think it's it's the other part that often gets missing i think what do you think are some major misconceptions that modern westerners have about indigenous traditions i think that they're that they're primitive or simple that that's the the thing that that I, from the 19th century um to the uh, mid to late 20th century that even people in academia would sort of look at american indian traditions as a a simple laboratory to understand religion generally, that their religions are, are simple forms of what we have in more complex forms. Um, and so I, I think that, that the idea in academia has, has gone away, but that it's, it remains in a lot of people's heads, that there's some sense of um, that it's superstition um, and that kind of thing, that it's, that it's simplistic. And I think that, that that not only does it not do justice to the native traditions themselves, but also sort of cuts you off to, to learning more about um, the people in our midst and how they're dynamic and growing and, and complex people generally. It's, it's too easy for us to think other people's beliefs are um, uh, superstitions and incorrect, but our beliefs are, are true and, re and real. 
and that if we have some sense of sort of opening up ourselves to 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 think about everybody's traditions as having value um not only i I think do we get along better but but we learn from each other better i think too Mm -hmm. sort of understand that american indians are still around that their traditions um are are growing and that and that in a lot of ways there are more people oriented toward their native traditions languages cultures now than there were at the turn of the last century 1890s was a sort of a nadir for american indians and and experiencing open aggression and um and genocidal practices and and that those um that the fact that american indians have uh, are sort of back to some sort of uh, solid footing is insofar as they are um in indian country is just a, an amazing testament to their their communities really so this is going to be the final question but as a religious studies professor who teaches hundreds of people per year um what do you tell your students about why it's important to learn about all religions uh to me uh, that that there's there's two main things one in the humanities in general the ability to sort of take an idea and explore it without feeling like you have to make a judgment on it or either adopt it or reject it if you can just explore it that that um that skill i think is essential just across the board and so religions are a a great place where students can sort of whatever their predisposed ideas are whether they're believers in one or another religion or whether they're they're opposed to any kind of religion at all because they run the gamut here at mizzou um that that if they can look at religions and see them in their in in their uh, context and see them as valid expressions that it gives them i think it hones those skills generally that's that's the one thing and the other thing is that that religious literacy i think is um it, it it's an essential uh, uh skill to have given the the diverse nature of the world that it's just getting smaller and smaller all the time and that and that people are expecting students to come out of public institutions with some awareness of the world and that religions are both an interesting way but also as i said before an, a, a broad window to glimpse into other cultures and so if you understand shinto you can get a lot more out of what you understand about japan mm-hmm. if you can understand taoism then you can kind of understand where chinese um uh, culture is and in, in sort of in the hinterland if it's not necessarily the government position or Catholicism in Mexico or wherever that you can sort of think with religions in a way that really is I find I find helpful it's a helpful data set that um, it's kind of like I don't know kind of like algebra that then you can sort of go on to calculus and statistics and things like that because you you have that that foundation and I think that religion's part of that that foundation really well this has really been a pleasure I have learned a lot today so um, thank you so much for uh, coming on the Classical Ideas podcast well, and having this conversation with me. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Awesome. The Classical Ideas podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com.
www.thinkingdeep.com. Thanks for listening.